Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and I am so excited to have Jillian White on the podcast today. Um, it feels like a really special day for me with the podcast. Uh, for one reason, um, I've been trying to get Jillian to come on for a while now, and we finally made our schedules line up. And, um, you know, I think we're both into the summers of our academic lives, which means we have a bit more flexibility and we were able to um, make it happen. Um, Jillian is someone I've admired and learned from over the years and um, and I think was someone who was um, sort of present as I bounced around the idea of the podcast in the first place. And so her encouragement meant a lot to me um, to begin with. So it feels nice and like there's the sense of Rhonda or whatever in, in, in bringing her onto the podcast today. But my excitement exceeds that cause. Um, my excitement also comes from the fact that we're here to talk about Elizabeth Bishop, who is, um, you know, maybe the poet. I'd, I'd, it feels funny to say that she is my favorite poet because that sounds like the way, um, you know, children talk about flavors of ice cream or something. But um, when people ask me, finding out I'm an English professor or whatever. Well, what's your favorite book? You know, sometimes I'll say, you know, the poems of Elizabeth Bishop. Um, this is the first time those of you who uh, um, have been with us from the beginning will surely be noting, um, wow, we're returning to a poet um, that we've already had an episode on. It's true. Um, I talked to Lindsay Turner in what was um, an early and, and really wonderful episode, I thought, about Bishop's poem, The Shampoo. Um, but I'm happy to um, revisit if a uh, poet, um, or, or I should say, if, if it's time to revisit a poet, I'm happy that it's Bishop. Um, and I'm happy that it's Bishop with Jillian White, um, who is a real expert. Um, the, the poem, I should say, that Jillian has chosen for us to talk about is a poem called Over 2,000 Illustrations and a Complete Concordance. Um, and we'll make that poem available to you in the episode notes, the text of the poem, so that you can look at it as we talk about it. Um, the title of that poem is a mouthful and is surely something we will um, talk about early on. So don't worry, we'll explain if that title leaves you confused. We'll explain something more about it in a moment. But first, let me tell you about our guest today. Um, Jillian is an associate professor in the Department of English, Language, and Literature at the University of Michigan, um, where she also runs the Poetry and Poetics Workshop. Uh, she is the author of the book Lyric Shame, the Lyric Subject of Contemporary American Poetry, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2014. Um, and I'll say more about that book in a moment. Um, Jillian's also working on a new book, she tells me that's loosely about reading poems in the classroom and genre questions that poets take up, which is a wonderful topic, I think. And, um, and I'm very excited to see the, the fruits of that labor um, soon, I hope. Um, you can also find Jillian's uh, public writing in places like the New York Review of Books, where she wrote um, a beautiful piece on the poet Bernadette Mare, um, and um, the Poetry Foundation website, and London Review of Books. Um, and I can make links available to um, Jillian's pieces in those places as well. Um, Lyric Shame, uh, Jillian's first book, 
is I think without question, one of the most important books in my field in the last 10 years. Um, and it brings together a deep understanding of genre um, and of the theoretical and historical developments that have drawn and redrawn genres boundaries. How do we know? What sense does it make to say we're reading a poem or a lyric poem in particular? Um, she brings together that kind of understanding with what is to me an, an obvious love of her subject of poetry, of particular poets and of particular poems, including the poem that we're and the poet that we're talking about today. Um, so, for those of you who want um, will want after we talk today to know more about what Jillian White has to say about Elizabeth Bishop, I I, I would send you to her book. Um, and she also has, and this is I think maybe uh, among the virtues that I'm trying to sing right now, the rarest, um, a real kind of um, curiosity about and attentiveness towards her own history as a reader, um, her own effective responses to poems and um, to reading experiences, um, to her own training and the way that training has... um, um, had its place in the history that she's describing. So the, the book gives us a new and vital account of the lyric poetry of the last 70 years. Um, and it does so um, both on, on that poetry's own terms and with the kind of critical eye of a real literary scholar. Um, and so it's a book um, that I have read that has meant a lot to me that is densely underlined. If if you were to see my copy, um, it's it's a book that meant a lot to me um, at a crucial moment in my own work, and that is just one of the many reasons why I'm so thrilled to have Jillian White on the podcast today. Jillian, you're you're joining us from Ann Arbor, yeah? How how are you doing today? Hi, Kamran. I'm doing really well. And gosh, that was an amazingly generous introduction. Um, as all of your introductions on this remarkable podcast have been, <laughs> I've started timing how long your introductions go. <laughs> and I go on them, too long sometimes. No, I'm no, sorry. No, it's, it sort of shows the kind of generosity with which you've um, and taken on this endeavor of creating this wonderful archive of conversations with scholars and writers and readers that you admire. And I just, I feel totally delighted to be here and yeah. grateful for your reflection on my book, which is, you know, I've, I've half forgotten it by now. And it's, um, <laughs> it's wonderful to be reminded that it, it's come to use. So thank you. Oh yeah. In lots of ways it has, it's, it's no, it, it has, you know, it's funny with the introductions. I think when I got and you and I were talking a little bit um, before we started recording about, my sense that when I started the podcast, I felt a little bit unsure of the, you know, it's funny. It's like its own little genre formation or something, right? You, you, you do it a couple of times and then you do it more and more and you kind of settle into certain grooves and, um, you think, oh, this is how I start. And these are the moves I make. And then I do this and then I do that. At first I didn't really know any of that. I was making it up as I went. It was a kind of organic process. It felt important to me at the beginning to try to keep 
the intros short and I felt like there, I, I have been feeling a little bit like there's a sort of creep in extending them and extending them. And um, I'm wanting to kind of trim that down a little bit so that w- there's more room for talk about the poetry, but well, I'm it, glad it, they've meant something to you. It does. Oh, for sure. It speaks, it speaks volumes about your, um, your generosity. And and that's a generosity that I find in the way you read as well. So, oh, um, and I've, I've learned a lot from your work as well. And I, I hope to continue continue to learn more and more from it as the years roll by. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's, that's a really, um, that's a really nice thing for you to say. So thank you so much. And I'm, I'm glad in that kind of broader sense of the term that you and I get to be in conversation. Um, but I'm, I'm glad in the somewhat narrower sense that we get to be in conversation today. Um, literally. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you about Bishop. And I'm excited to talk with you about this poem. I know that when um, I first asked you and then asked and then asked and then asked, I've been bugging Jillian for a while now um, for you to come on to the podcast. Um, As that conversation developed, uh, you thought about a few different options and we don't have to enumerate them necessarily, but I'd be curious to know more about what um, drew you in the end to the choice you've made for us today. Well, I I came to reading Bishop really young. Um, I'd say that she was my f- sort of gateway drug for reading poetry at all. I came out of a public high school situation where I had, you know, except for Shakespeare, almost no encounters mm-hmm. with poetry and then arrived at um, Northwestern University and, um, and was given a, a handful of poets by the poet Mary Kinsey in a class mm-hmm. called Reading and Writing Poetry. Um, and among that handful of poets that really shaped my sense that, wow, poetry is something great. Bishop, I think, was the, the most important um, to me. So important, in fact, that, um, that I, I changed majors. Um, uh, I changed schools. I was in the, in the um, Medill School of Journalism. And after taking this class with Mary Kinsey, uh-huh. I called my parents and said, sorry, I'm not going to be a journalist. <laughs> I'm going to be an English major. And right. I double majored in, in reading and writing poetry and reading and writing fiction um, at that point. Yeah. And, um, and it was it was these long poems from this era um, that I think especially caught my attention. Um, these poems huh. that Bishop wrote in the 40s after her first book came out, um, including right. Cape Breton and over 2,000 illustrations and... Yeah. At the fish houses in particular, I think, oh, was the man. sort of other choice I could have made for today. Yeah. Um, and they just, something about them, and I, I became very identified with Bishop's writing, not necessarily Bishop as, as a person, but with her uh-huh. writing. And uh-huh. this one in particular, kind of, I, I never exhaust my interest in it. So it seemed like a good one to bring to a close reading conversation. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm so glad you chose it. I mean, um, it's like all cards on the table, right? I've, um, yeah, Bishop, I think I, I too fell in love with her in college. Um, and, um, and I remember, I think I confessed this to you earlier. It's funny, all this language of confession and disclosure and so on, maybe it has a role to play in our conversation today as well, but, um, no shame. Right, right. (laughs) I wrote it. I wrote my senior essay in college on Elizabeth Bishop and its title, um, is a phrase from 
the end of this poem, the phrase infant sight, which um, is a phrase we can come back to maybe. So that poem, you know, was really important to me and has been ever since. Um, It's a poem I've gone back to and sort of trying to explain to myself certain attitudes or experiences I have and kind of privileged moments of my life or in relationships with other people. And um, it's, it's been an, it's been an important point of reference for me. I think I heard you say a moment ago that you identified very strongly with Bishop's writing and you felt more of a sense. I mean, this isn't, this wasn't your word, but I'll um, inject it um, into the conversation here. You felt more of a sense of ambivalence about thinking about Bishop's life or Bishop's biography. And I wonder, you know, we, we don't have to get into the weeds of, of biography by any means today, but I wonder if you might, if, if, well, A, if I heard you right, and if so, B, um, could you say something more about the nature of that ambivalence, if that's even the right word? Um, that's great. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think the first, you did hear me right. And I, I think it's worth saying that the way I was taught to read poetry was very much as a new critic, where the question of the person's life was not really paramount um, as right. we approached poems, right? So the whole endeavor of close reading, which of course um, was a term invented by a great close reader, new critic, Ruben Brower, right? Um, uh, who was Helen Vendler's teacher at Harvard. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the, the endeavor, you know, involved, you know, not really necessarily looking at anything but the text on the page at first, right, right and kind of slowing down. So I think that's the, the spirit in which I began reading poems. And, and, yeah. um, and then as I, you know, grew matured as a, as a critic and a thinker, um, and, and also came to want, wonder more about Bishop, I, I did find out about her life. And um, I, I found, but I also found that so much of the criticism of her work involved uh, intense attention to her life in a way that I found right. interesting, puzzling, right, and and yeah. and one with it with a with a history um, that we can talk about more in a little bit. But um, just to say that her life—it's not that I don't identify with her life or or anything. Um, she had a, a, a an interesting but quiet life. I mean, she was, she hmm. was born in 1911. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I think where was she born now? I'm not, now I'm not remembering. Oh, in Worcester mass. Um, and her father died when she was very young, maybe two. And her mother, uh, was institutionalized when she right. was very young. Um, and Bishop was then shuttled back and forth between two families, her mother's family, her mother's parents and her, um, and, and, and aunts, um, various family members took over and she was moved back and forth from Nova Scotia, Canada to, um, to Boston, um, and two very different worlds, uh, and then went to Vassar college, uh, in the thirties and, uh, started writing poems at that point. Um, yeah. and, and then, you know, because of the loss of the parents had inherited enough money, I think to, to live without really having many jobs. Um, and so had a, had a life as a poet, um, and did some teaching, but honestly, when I, when I started thinking about her life and maybe you can relate to this, mm. um, uh, I, I read her letters, right. That was one of the first things that I did. And, it was just this terrible feeling of sadness of kind of going from the early 
excitement and promise of her as a young mm. writer trying to manage a lot of afflictions that came, I think, from all the loss and sorrow of her childhood yeah. um, and gradually kind of falling prey to those sorrows, you know, in different ways. Um, somebody right. who couldn't, you know, had a lot of illness and, and, and a drinking problem and a lot of heartache and yeah. loss in her life. Um, and it, it was sort of depressing to learn about her life. And I sort of wanted to maintain mm. that um, textual voice that I had become so attached to, which was yeah. sort of a person and sort of not a person at the same time. Well, that's a really, um, that's a fascinating narrative you've just given us, um, Jillian, of your own sort of developing relationship to Bishop. I mean, I'll say, I remember there was a time when I was, uh, you know, in one of my own kind of, you know, depressive phases or something just after college. And at the time there was, um, you know, there was that series of, um, at first audio cassette, I think eventually they became CD recordings that, um, Sandy McClatchy, um, made called the voice of Voices the poet. poet. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a Bishop cassette that I had and I was feeling badly enough that there wasn't much that I felt like doing, but I, for whatever reason, I found it soothing to put her tape on and just listen to her read her poems. And I liked sort of, and we'll talk, I think in a minute about reading. I mean, um, now I don't mean um, reading silently, but oral, you know, um, sort of performance styles in, in the reading of poetry. Um, Bishop was a famously kind of flat and unenthusiastic, often quite reluctant reader. Um, now some people who care about Bishop, I think would, describe it just as I have. Some might say that even in the sincerity of that approach, there was its own kind of performance. Uh, you know, um, her friend James Merrill described her um, modest everyday impersonation of an ordinary woman. You know, there, there is this kind of um, performance of modesty um, that I think is an interesting way to think about Bishop. But, but yeah, I, I, I found, I found her voice um, soothing. I don't know how else to put it. Um, and um, her letters d did and have and continue to mean a lot to me. I mean, um, I am someone who cares a lot about epistolary writing, generally speaking, and Bishop is really how that first happened for me. She was perhaps my gateway drug into poetry, but also into, into letters. Um, and I know what you mean, because the life did have, I mean, there was a lot of, um, you know, she was a child to whom a lot of bad things happened when she was little I mean, the loss of her parents is mainly what I have in mind here in different ways, but the loss of both of them. Um, and who, yes, as you say, had a kind of um, obviously natural gifts or whatever, however we'd want to describe that and the good fortune to um, pursue those gifts in, in places like Vassar college and, um, some early successes she had in career and people she happened to meet who helped introduce her to other people and so on. And there was a great deal of excitement, I think, in the late 30s and um, early 40s for Bishop. And then she goes to Brazil and falls in love. And there's a great deal of excitement in that. And yet, yes, you're right. A sense of affliction and sadness and sorrow certainly found her again. Um, what I wanted to say about the letters I did find them, um, and I'm sure this isn't all you meant or even 
what you said precisely, but I, I guess I just would say for myself that that I even as the the letters sort of describe and wind their way through the ups and downs of that life, I I don't I I don't remember feeling depressed by the letters. Um, the the letters, um, you know, that phrase that Bishop wanted on her tombstone alone, and and you know, um, awful but awful cheerful, but cheerful, yeah, yeah. Um, there's something in the performance of her voice in in letters and and maybe in poems too that um that sort of threads that needle for me that there's a kind of lightness and humor mm-hmm. and oh i think um, that's true yeah i think that, that's, that's really sort true. of present all along yeah i think that's true she 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 was a survivor and 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 survived with with work i think and with cheerfulness yeah. of a kind and, yeah. and and a sense of sort of gratefulness and and intellectualism and all sorts yeah. of things. But um, I think it's just, I, th- I must have wanted her to be a hero of a kind. And oh, I right. think seeing really her late life kind of unwind into, yeah. into, into, into some sadness just sure. felt disappointing. And I mean, I think I've always had this strange desire for a Bishop to be more heroic, to be heroic in some sense. And I, huh. I haven't even wanted to admit that that's true, but I, she's the only <laughs> poet who's like, I've been to the archive. I've read what yeah. I can. I I took a pilgrimage to her house in in yeah. Brazil. I got to eat lunch at her in her yeah. room, you know, for my forty third birthday on um, the occasion of her centenary. And you know, so I think she's. I sort of have a a, a big crush on her at some yeah. weird level that I can't yeah. really explain. But you know, and f- indeed, I think that cheerfulness, that that sense of survival, like her her poem about Buster Keaton, that was yeah. among her drafts. Yeah. Um, to me feels completely right that she's somebody who had internalized some image of Buster Keaton, yeah. right? Her, yeah. her inner proof rock I've said in print was That's Buster right. Keaton, right? That's so right. if T.S. Eliot kind of imagined this sad, you know, despairing young man who hasn't right. made things work, I think Bishop's inner, inner I proof rock is actually Buster Keaton. So. The sort of buoyancy and and yeah, yeah that's right. ability to survive like all kinds of things and and stay sort of elegant and funny all at once. You know. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. great. That, I think we must have talked about you know maybe virtually talked about this recently. But there's that there's the moment that she describes that it was a point of pride for her. She's telling a story to her great friend Robert Lowell in a letter. Um, about th- the first time she met Theodore Rethke, Ted Rethke, who said to her, "You're a quick kid in a caper." <laughs> she she helped get him into a cab or something, you know, at the end after a reading or something like that. And she sort of logistically figured something out. He she he said, "You're a quick kid in a caper," That's and perfect. she you could tell she loved that idea. Yeah, and that feels to me sort sort of related to this Buster Keaton idea. Um, so so. I, I think we should um, we should um, listen to a recording of the poem. Um, now I do, I I don't um, have and um, and I don't know whether one exists or not. Uh, um, it doesn't seem to be readily accessible online if it does exist. But a recording of Bishop herself reading this poem, and instead we have what is in some ways an even more interesting artifact to listen to. Um, so what what we'll listen to in a moment is the poet John Ashbery reading Bishop's poem over 2,000 illustrations in a complete concordance. Ashbery 
um, and Bishop knew each other. I mean, Ashbury, for those, you know, for whom these dates are slightly foggier, you know, were contemporaries of a sort, though Ashbury was maybe a generation younger um, than than Bishop. Um they they knew each other uh, and and bishop meant a lot to ashbury i think um and and to um some of the other poets that ashbury associated with like um schuyler for instance james schuyler really loved bishop's poems um ashbury having said that is a very different kind of poet from the kind of poet that Bishop is. Um, or maybe it's more appropriate to say that Ashbury is many kinds of poet and most of the kinds of poet he is are very different from the kind that Bishop is. Um, but I think he's on the record as, as having said that this poem in particular was like um, a really important poem to him and that it, um, well, we can talk about some of the nature of that performance later. So Jillian, I don't want to give too much away. I'm going to play the recording of Ashbury reading it. I'll say to our listeners that I have some concern here that the um, that the volume of this recording might be slightly lower than um, what you're hearing now from the two of us. So you may need to adjust your volume to, to hear Ashbury properly. Um, but I, I think it'll be worth it. And then on the on the back end of this, we will um, we will talk about what we've just heard. So here's John Ashbury. Over 2,000 illustrations and a complete concordance. Thus should have been our travels, serious, engravable. The seven wonders of the world are tired and a touch familiar, but the other scenes, innumerable, though equally sad and still, are foreign. Often the squatting Arab or group of Arabs, plotting probably against our Christian empire, while one apart, with outstretched arm and hand, points to the tomb, the pit, the sepulcher. The branches of the date palms look like files. The cobbled courtyard where the well is dry is like a diagram. The brickwork conduits are vast and obvious. The human figure far gone in history or theology, gone with its camel or its faithful horse. Always the silence, the gesture, the specks of birds suspended on invisible threads above the site. Or the smoke rising solemnly pulled by threads Granted a page alone, or a page made up of several scenes arranged in catty-cornered rectangles, or circles set on stippled gray. Granted a, glim, granted a grim lunette caught in the toils of an initial letter, when dwelt upon, they all resolve themselves. The eye drops, waited, through the lines that Buren made, the lines that move apart like ripples above sand, dispersing storms, God's spreading fingerprint, and painfully, finally, that ignite in watery, prismatic white and blue. Entering the narrows at St. John's, the touching bleat of goats reached to the ship. We glimpsed them, reddish, leaping up the cliffs among the fog-soaked weeds and butter and eggs. And at St. Peter's, the wind blew and the sun shone madly, rapidly, purposefully, the collegians marched in lines, crisscrossing the great square with black like ants. In Mexico, the dead man lay in a blue arcade. The dead volcanoes glistened like Easter lilies, and a jukebox went on playing, Ay, Jalisco. And at Volubilis, there were beautiful poppies splitting the mosaics. The fat old guide made eyes. In Dingle Harbor, a golden length of evening, rotting hulks 
held up their dripping plush. The English woman poured tea, informing us that the Duchess was going to have a baby. And in the brothels of Marrakesh, the little pockmarked prostitutes balanced their tea trays on their heads and did their belly dances, flung themselves naked and giggling against our knees, asking for cigarettes. It was somewhere near there I saw what frightened me most of all, the holy grave, not looking particularly holy, and a group under a keyholed arched stone baldequin open to every wind from the pink desert, an open, gritty marble trough, carved solemn with exhortation, yellowed as scattered cattle teeth, half filled with dust, not even the dust of the poor prophet Paynim who once laid there, and a smart Bernouz Kadur looked on, amused. Everything only connected by and 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 open the book. The gilt rubs off the edges of the pages and pollinates the fingertips. Open the heavy book. Why couldn't we have seen this old nativity while we were at it? The dark ajar, the rocks breaking with light, an undisturbed, unbreathing flame. Colorless, sparkless, freely fed on straw, and lulled within a family with pets, and looked and looked our infant sight away. So <laughs> that's John Ashbury. Um, and Jillian, I just want you to talk about what we've just heard and um, what you found yourself thinking about as you listened to it, but also sort of mm, what this performance means to you. Wow. Um, it's such a performance. I, I've, I've heard it before. I've heard it recorded before. Um, and I, I have this weird fantasy that I heard it in person. And I don't know if it's true. Um, in my memory, the reading was at uh, the 92nd Street Y in the late 90s, when I would have been, you know, able to go to see a reading, yeah. such a reading. And, and I remember being there and knowing that Ashbury was moved, but I don't know if it's true, which is one thing to know. But what I've, what I've heard and, and hearing it subsequently recorded, um, I can't get through it without feeling moved myself. I mean, I, I, at the point yeah. when I think his voice begins to break, the poem is in two sections. Um, yeah. Uh, what, what I would call two stickic sections. In other words, with lines that don't, that aren't broken into stanzas. Um, right. Uh, and then there's a break between, the, the first section that ends with pris, watery, prismatic, white and blue and turns right. to a more kind of personal um, yeah. uh, um, uh, it's not a first person perspective. It's a third person perspective. No, well, it's, it's a first no, person, first person plural yeah. perspective. Yeah, right. It's a first person plural perspective. Um, so it gets more personal, even though it's still in the we. Um, yeah. And at that point his, his voice begins to break and he starts to make some, little errors i think because he's so moved yes um and he just and, sort of like uh runs right through them or something yeah or he, he just keeps he, moving like yeah. he's he's taken he's taken yeah. by the lines and i do find these lines inexplicably quite moving um, right and and then by the that's it's actually a poem in three sections i take yeah. it back um there's another uh break uh, uh after in a smart bernus Cador looked on amused Right. Um, which is one of my favorite lines in the whole poem. <laughs> and, um, and the next line, which is everything only connected by and, 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 
Uh, and there he really starts to, I think, almost yeah. weep, uh, weep yeah. aloud. And, you know, he, he and she, I think she was important to the New York School Poets, which is something that um, your former guest, Andrew Epstein, has written about, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, she, and, and in, the, in, in the, um, the Encyclopedia of New York School Poetics, she gets a, an entry as somebody who was influential to, to both Ashbury uh, and Frank O'Hara and, um, and James Schuyler in particular, um, and I, I can see why, honestly, to me, it doesn't seem like such a stretch. I mean, yeah, say more a, about that. What, what is the connection? Well, I would say she was an early kind of surrealist herself. Right, um, right. she was really taken by, by Gertrude Stein as well. And in her papers, right. there's writing that she did about seeing identity at play in Paris when she was a young woman. Um, so I think she had similar touchstones. She was interested in the French poets as he was and the French surrealists, Right. Um, and it's, it's only sort of, and the visual arts, right. And the visual arts very much. She was herself a painter, a very fine, a fine sketcher and, and watercolorist and painter. Um, and she wrote in, in French forms or European forms that he also wanted to try. So her Sistina encouraged him to write a couple of Sistinas himself. Um, and, and I think there's also something about her propensity to pull out language that's not hers exactly, not expressive, but rather discursive, I would say, public, Uh, quoted, um, and to use it in a way that is subtly woven into what seems like straight ahead talking. Um, I think that's where I find the edginess in her work the most interesting, and I relate it very much to to Ashbury and what Ashbury learned from her and what O'Hara learned from her too. Oh, I love um, that. I don't yeah. think many people, it's not often I hear Bishop described as an edgy poet. Um, but I, so I'm so grateful for your having said that because it gives me um, a new way to think about her or, or a, um, maybe even just um, a set of words to put to a way that I have always thought about her. Um, Great, yeah. Yeah, um, that sort of mi- mixing of discursive registers um, and, yeah. and an interest in, you know, because Bishop is often just, um, especially early in her life and 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 often in relation to Marianne Moore, who is like her... Um, you know, most visible um, uh, kind of sponsoring figure. Um, but you'll hear Bishop described as a descriptive poet, right? Or as a miniaturist. Um, Terrible. I really hate that. I've never uh, liked that as a description. More. And in fact, I think, I think as a, after college, when I decided to kind of devote myself to studying Bishop more carefully, I kept finding that to be the the reputation and feeling like it betrayed my sense of her completely. Or yeah. You know, maybe not completely, because I can see that she's a very um, scrupulous and careful uh, right. user of language to describe things. Yeah. But I, it's not what what drew me to her, and it's not what keeps me there. It's not yeah. like I go to her to, to. In fact, I think she's really a theorist of of representation huh. yeah, so much. Good. Somebody who's thinking so much about 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 the history of representation, about its ethics, about about its complexities about its failures. I think dramas of Good. representation and interpretation, visual interpretation are so often what I find most interesting in Good. her work. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, 
and there's well, there there are different kinds of representation at work in this poem, and so mm-hmm. surely that's mm-hmm. something we'll um, we'll want to get into. Uh, maybe before we leave Ashbury behind altogether, we can um, we can we should just note also, as um, you've reminded me, and as um, the already referred to friend of both of ours and previous guest Andrew Epstein has reminded me too that um, Ashbury not only um, was on the record as um, uh, about this poems being important to him. In fact, there's more than one recording I can point people to of Ashbury reading this poem that we have. Mm-hmm. So I can mm-hmm. make the other link available too. But he specified that this poem meant something to him and was a kind of key text or influence for him in with respect to his poem, one of Ashbury's great poems, um, Soonest Mended. Right. Um, a poem that he also described as his quote one size fits all confessional poem. Yeah. Um, so that, that points to a fascinating kind of matter of literary and poetic history that um, I, yeah. I think you, you might want to elucidate a bit. Yeah. For us. I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think both poems have this kind of easy unfolding toward the personal, right. Yeah. Um, they take on a form that is not unrelated to what, M.H. Abrams called the greater romantic lyric, right? Which right. is just, you know, a kind of his his way of describing a set of poems that came from right. romantic writers where um, a writer like Wordsworth or Coleridge is, you know, looking at a scene, um, right. has a set of associations, uh, goes into a reverie and then emerges changed, right? And I think right. there's something about that legacy that gets grafted onto the idea of confessionalism at some point. Yes. Um, and and I think this poem also takes a little bit of that form. And, and actually Bishop at this era of her work described herself worried that she would be taken as a minor female Wordsworth, right? Right. Um, right. And, and, and yet I think there's no, there's no, worry there. I think she's she's doing yeah. something that maybe grows out of Wordsworth, but also takes it and, and ironizes it and complicates it and complicates the position yeah. of the personal um, well, in this poem. It's funny because this poem, um, it, it's, it's on my very short list of most loved Bishop poems, which means it's on my very short list of most loved poems, period. Um, in some, and, 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 like you, I think, and you know, well, we'll see, you know, as we talk more. But um, I, I see all kinds of sort of characteristic bishop preoccupations at work in this poem. But I also want to say that, like, in some ways, this poem seems to me to be rather atypical of, um, I think, atypical of the kind of poem Bishop herself would have had in mind when she described herself as a minor female Wordsworth, like, hmm. in part because the the first half of the poem and and I agree with your first instinct which was that the poem is divided into what I would say is like the poem is in two halves and then there's a third there's like a coda or right, you know nice. there's a shorter yeah. third section Thanks, um, yeah. so if you take the first of its three halves um it's a description of a book it is yeah so it's a description uh, of the yeah. of the Bulmer family bible in fact yeah. which um which you know was an illustrated bible um uh, you know, the new devotional and practical pictorial family Bible that included both the Old and New Testaments, which I think is pretty important, actually, yeah, and okay. Apocrypha and a concordance and Psalms in meter, 
um, and a dictionary of the Bible. Yeah. So the concordance is, it describes, you know, um, a, a, a grouping of, of, of words that would be arranged in alphabetical order and lead you to the places in the scripture where those words appear. And right. this is something to note about the poem for those who aren't seeing it at home. There's a lot of, there are a lot of words in the poem that are capitalized. And I think this yes. refers us to the organization of the concordance. We can give some um, examples. Tomb, for instance, pit, seven sepulcher. wonders of the world, yeah. but also mm -hmm. tomb, pit, sepulcher, well. Yeah. Um, and I did a little toying around on on concordances and found indeed that these yeah. are words that would be that would be repeated. And the site, s i t e, which of course is a yes. homophone for site. But yeah, she's she's describing, um, you know, there's a, there's a kind of claim that the poem starts with about. The, the inadequacy of, of travels by comparison to this object that's being thumbed through, right. um, which is this family Bible. Um, so, so we should, um, we should imagine the title, I guess, as part of the, part of the, sorry, let me, let me say this precisely as I can. The title of Bishop's poem is, meant to be understood, I think, as though it were excerpted from the title given to a, a certain kind of Bible, right? right? So it's, it's a it's, Bible that comes with over 2,000 illustrations and a complete concordance. Right. right. And indeed, the Bulmer Family Bible has, as part of its title page, the phrase, published with over 2,000 fine scripture illuminations. So there um, or it illustrations, is. right? Yeah. Illustrations, yeah. yeah. I've, I can't read my own writing, but yeah, illustrations. So, so she's so she's taking something from her own past. She's not um, foregrounding that. I mean, this isn't a poem, in other words, that that says like my grandparents' Bible, blah right. blah. Right? She doesn't get into right. that here. No. Instead, it begins in this, like you say, in this sort of discursive mode almost an essayistic kind of mode. Mm -hmm. Thus should have been our travels is yes. the first line of the poem. Yeah. So um, what's being announced, I think, is that the first long section of this poem is going to describe the serious and engravable nature of the book's representations of various things right. that our own travels, whatever those were, and she comes back to those in the second half of the poem, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Fall so she short makes a of, contrast, you know, right, yeah, between right. the the images from this Bible, which you know could have ranged from you know um, historical sites of importance to the Christian story to the Old yeah. Testament story, and if the fact that it's old and new, you know, suggests a sort of typological interpretive um, uh, yeah. vibe about this text, right? Which <laughs> okay. is is always going to be using whatever it has at hand from the world to tell a Christian story, right? That, um, that, yeah, that's great. I want to stop you there because um, I, I, I think I know what you mean, but I, I, I think um, maybe listeners would benefit from hearing a bit more. So when you say typological, um, there is a kind of uh, way of reading the relationship between the Old and the New Testament that would suggest that um, Adam for instance, in the Old Testament is a kind of uh, version Portent. Of, Portent. Of, right, of Christ, of Christ. In, the, in the New right. Testament, or, right? Or Noah's Ark, right, which yeah. is an Old Testament story, uh, becomes a kind of figure for the church, the Christian church, right, in, right. Its, in its struggles, right? Or yeah. um, old Hebraic texts, you know, 
are secretly telling the story of of what will come. Right? And so Which one of the things that the Oh, good. Yeah. And one of the things that the that the sort of New Testament will want to do is to say to all those stories that you know, they are um, they are the kind of literal or manifest version of something which you should now understand spiritually. Right. Right. Um, and this whole book would have been like this, right? It would have been a, right. like a one volume encyclopedia of all kinds of things, like the plants from the Holy Land and things right. like this. Right. Right. Um, right. And so it's it's a kind of wonder right but it also has this agenda right it's it's um it has an agenda which i think is important i mean we we do end the poem as we'll talk about with an image of of the incarnation right of of the birth of 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 jesus you know the the incarnation of christ as a man as a person right in the world describe that i mean it's not that those those terms don't appear but yes they don't appear but i think it's i think to me it feels it feels you know given the context of the bible and all of it you know it seems it seems it seems to lead us i mean maybe i'm reading typologically no 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 no. (laughs) well right you're encouraged to and in fact to be fair she says this old nativity right this old nativity and she capitalizes nativity so it it, it becomes one of the terms from the bible um yeah we'll come and and we also have our our christian empire right and we have you know um, the seven wonders of the world, which are mostly items that precede the birth of Jesus, right? right? Um, the, the pyramids or the hanging gardens or, you know, all these different yeah. wonders of the world um, that are in this Bible as well, right? So we, we have this strong sense that she's doing something with the discourses of history, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so I don't think um, we'll, we'll, um, We'll, I mean, the poem is probably too long for us to attempt a kind of line-by-line reading of it, but I think your structural description of it makes sense and that it can it can serve for us as a guide. So, Jillian, kind of um, standing back for a moment from the first line of the poem up through watery, prismatic, white and blue, the sort of description of the book, the artifact that is the Bible, um, is there are there are there lines that you would want to take us to that are um, representative to you um, for you of the um, of the poem's interest in the object or the poem's way of establishing its own relation to the object? What is it about this book? I mean, you've already said some of this, but now I, I guess I want for us to focus a bit more on particular lines and moments in that first half of the of the poem that that um, get at something essential in this poem for you? Yeah, that's a great question, Kamran. Um, there's so much in this opening that I could yeah. attend to. I mean, I think for me, there's the wavery sense that that we're looking at something that is also transforming. Um, hmm. That, 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 whatever effort there is to sort of stay with the, the object itself, that task is getting complicated. I mean, yeah. um, give us always. an example. That so, sounds so, great. I mean, even I, I, I want to, I don't want us to not think about often the squatting Arab or group of Arabs plotting probably against our Christian empire. Which I think is, that's such a fascinating moment. It's such a fascinating line. Um, while one apart with outstretched arm and hand, points to the tomb, the pit, the sepulcher. I mean, the probably has always fascinated me. Um, I take this, I mean, it's hard. 
I probably have a stronger reading of it than is fair to, to insert already, but to me, it feels like cited speech at some level. Like it's, it's, it's mm. not straight ahead. It's, it's, there's something ironized here. Yeah. Um, Sorry. And you say cited speech, you mean cited with a C. So it's as though the speech a, is, um, quoted she's, or something. She's, it's as though she's quoting from something or she's imitating a, a way that people talk or a way right. that someone has written something. Right. And a way that the Bible has been arranged, probably, you know, or, or right. something, something in Christian discourse that, you know, given the Crusades, <laughs> given yes. right. uh, a history of, of a lot of violence um, in establishing Christianity in, in the Mediterranean and in Africa um, uh, uh, and the Arab world, right? Um, th- there's, there's, there's something interesting there to me about her her own attitude towards this history or the poem's attitude or, or something um, that I probably, wanted. probably points to um, a kind of explanatory framework, which is um, implicit, but not insisted upon. It's as though there's a kind of, you, we know how this story goes. Right. Um, you see right. a still image and you can sort of construct before and after it, a kind of, set of motivations right. and probable outcomes and all you need is the image in order to render that narrative somehow. right that the narrative surrounds it already and kind of dictates right. how it should be read with um, that perhaps. in mind is is there something to say about the internal rhyme that happens at that moment so often the squatting arab or group of arabs plotting, plotting probably often and plotting well no the, sorry the squatting and plotting oh the squatting and plotting yes yeah. the squatting and plotting and often and probably yeah, yeah maybe, I mean, which is right. a kind of semantic rhyme as well yeah um that's right yeah or or a kind of chiasm i don't know some sort yeah. of te- there's tension there in an yeah. interesting way um yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I think we feel like it's all sewn up in a weird kind of way, That's although right. the stitches yeah. are hidden, right? Yeah. It's not an end rhyme. It's sort of somewhere in there, maybe. Yeah. Um, I like it. And it's it's also, you know, there's an us and a there's a there's a us and a them, right? Yeah, That's established sure. that I think that I think um Bishop's gonna play with and has it at at, at concern the entire poem at some I've, level. I think I heard you say earlier on that there were moments where there was a kind of, um, you know, well, to use uh, to use her words now from the second line of the poem, serious or engravable kind of um, fixed image right. that's being described. But then you use the word, if I heard you right, wavery. There's, there's a kind of wavery. There's yeah. a feeling. I love that word. Um, does that mean it? It sort of has the quality of wavering. It sort of flickers. It's wavering. Or, yeah. yeah okay, and I'm good. thinking. I'm thinking of like the heat over you know sand a, in yes, a place. Perfect. And and the the lines that move apart like ripples above sand, dispersing storms, God's yeah. spreading fingertip, and painfully finally that ignite in watery prismatic white and blue. I mean, we're being asked to look at this engraved still image right. that is somehow coming apart, right, and shimmering. Yeah, that's so good. This, you know, what what I my my response to the bishop as descriptive poet thing has always been. I mean, it's it's led by there's this very famous letter that Bishop writes to Anne Stevenson about Charles Darwin. She says yeah. that Darwin was her favorite prose writer or something, and then she says that what what you love about I should have it at hand so I could quote it exactly. I thought about looking it up. And no, no, I it's forgot. okay. Yeah. It's okay. She she says something like you know what one admires about Darwin is is the is the kind of image of the young scientist kind of closely minutely focused on some. Det- I'm now paraphrasing detail here or there and then suddenly there's a there's a kind of error or a slip and what one sees is um 
is the artist sort of sliding, the writer sort of giddily. sliding giddily off into the unknown. Yes. Um, and that one yes. want, what one wants in art is, is the same thing that's necessary for its production, a perfectly useless concentration, right? Right, right. Um, Absolutely. So, so sorry. So that she does want to sort of look closely at and describe something, but but what she really, it seems to me, to be into, to use a weird kind of language, is she likes to look at it and describe it so intently that it starts to look strange yeah. and it starts to sort of shimmer or come alive or wiggle or waver, as you've said. So I think so. I think that's um, part of it. And then to me, the other part of it is that I think that's absolutely right. But I think the other part of it for me is her ever awareness of how mediating is already look is already uh, looking is already mediated rather. I love it. Yeah, so that good. always the silence, the right. gesture, the specks of birds suspended on invisible threads above the site. Like it. it's a little bit like a stage set, right? Yeah. Like we know the birds are there because the birds are always there, right? They're part of the scene. They're part of right. this, you know, the, the set um, of, of what this is supposed to look like. Right. So Right. She's looking at the scene, which is engraved and, and kind of not only seeing it for what it is as an image, right, with these burn lines and stuff, but, but also understanding that it is part of a system of representation that feels a little bit um, produced, right, where the, the looking isn't innocent, where the thing that you're looking at isn't just sort of by, by chance there, it's, it's been arranged. And I think to me, this feels related to the question of of typology and of sort of interpretive yeah. uh, force, but yeah. I'm not sure I've made sense there, but. Um, oh, I think you have. And, and in a way, you know, to go to connect it again, I keep doing this, but to the second line of the poem, the serious engravable, right? It's as though what, what's being asserted is that, you know, our travels and, it, and we'll come to those in a minute, whatever that refers to, but take it, you know, for now is just like our own, touristic adventures in the world l lack something that th these engraved scenes have, which is this kind of overdetermined, already present narrative coherence, and right. even more than narrative coherence, like a kind of ideological coherence. Concordance, right. A concordance, a, a, a concordance an right. ideological concordance, yeah. right? Because a concordance is, you know, harmony right it's a, it's agreement and harmony like that that's yes. the other meaning of a concordance right. is something that comes perfectly round to to become whole which which makes you know the some of this language really interesting to me like first of all the human figure far gone in history yeah. or theology which if you look up far gone in the oxford english dictionary it gets yeah. its own oh, its yeah. own entry yeah Good. which means you know beyond help, right? Right. Um, but also can mean in this context uh, somewhere long distant. Long distant, right? Mm -hmm. But so there's so she's sort of playing around with things that mean two things. And the best of those, um, I think, is is they all resolve themselves. Okay. Granted, a page alone or a page made up of several scenes arranged in catty cornered rectangles or circles set on stippled gray, granted a grim lunette caught in the toils of an initial letter when dwelt upon, they all resolve themselves, right? And I was mm. thinking, do I know the meaning of the word resolve? And <laughs> I think of resolve as something like what you're saying, like something that comes together or yeah. 
falls into place or begins to make a kind of sense. But the word you think of the resolution is, of a story or something like right, that. Like right. Like the end, right? Like mm-hmm. now we sew it up and it's done. Right. Um, or the problem, you know, was insolvable that we've we've solved it and now everything's right. resolved, right? Right. Um, but it actually means something more like um uh liquefaction, dissolution, uh a loosening or unfastening, an unraveling and a release, right? Like, so there's like dissolution, like, like dissolution, dissolving. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's it has this this strong history as as a word that that meant kind of un you know, breaking the knot apart, basically, or letting it letting it fall apart, kind of. And that seems to happen at the end of the section to the book she's looking at, right? Yes, Where this yes. wavery thing that you've described now literally is what's happening on the page. It is such a wacky yeah. series. The, the syntax is really thorny. It's wacky. It goes, it just, if you try to track what's actually happening there, I mean, I think my undergraduate self just kind of gave up at some point, you know, with trying to sort of track what is actually happening here. Um, because the subject of granted a page alone or a page made up, you're not sure if what's being granted is um, the scene or the page itself, right? The the syntax confuses you at that point. And, Um, and the, um, and the lines, the, the Burin made so that are like the um, now looking at the page as though it were a page, right. That had been mm -hmm. engraved. Um those lines move apart like ripples above sand, which is the kind of scene that had been depicted elsewhere in, right. and is depicted elsewhere in the book. So there's a kind of swapping of um, kind of figure for ground here. Yes. And were. then, and then the, you know, the, the, the dependent clauses keep heaping up. Um, we don't know exactly whether the ripples in the sand are also like dispersing storms, or if there's something else doing that dispersing there, that's the yeah. subject of these, you know, it's just, it, the, right. the syntax is really complicated. Right. Um, and, and it just keeps growing, God's spreading fingertip. I mean, and there you get this feeling of, you know, God's fingertip must be big, like his fingerprint must be big. Yeah. <laughs> it must really and take over, right? Well, it feels in a way like, yeah. Yeah. She couldn't have known about the expanding universe yet, but no. it sort of feels like it. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, all right. It's just really, it's it's wonky. It's it's like this thing that's supposed to be serious and engravable and resolved is actually pretty unresolved for me as an image, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I, guess I would say that, it, you know, it's like, you know, you stare at any anything too long and it be, and what what had formerly tied it together might suddenly seem to come apart when that and when that happens for her here the eye drops way to maybe almost sounds like like the whoever's looking at the book is falling asleep or something like that it becomes sort of dreamlike and but also like alive mm-hmm. you know it, it's as though the book is coming to life somehow mm-hmm. and 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 then that sort of cuts off at its climax, there's a there's a there's a kind of section break, mm-hmm. and an abrupt shift into this other mode that the poem then, for most of its course, enters in on. Entering the narrows at St. John's, the touching bleed of goats reach to the ship. Right. We yeah, and we've them, we've right? switched yeah. tense too, right? Yeah. We've made we've 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 we're now in the in the past, whereas before, looking at the book was the present. You know, the right. seven wonders of the world are tired, 
they are yeah. tired and a touch yeah. familiar. So it's the scene of present tense narration of what's happening. And this is memory of what has happened. Um, oh, that's a nice way to put it. Memory yeah, of what has happened. So it, so to the extent that Ashbury or anyone else maybe wanted to take this poem as an example of Bishop writing in a kind of personal register, I mean, there are different ways to think about what that would mean in, in even in the space of this poem. So though I don't know if Ashbury would have known it, but that I guess we can say, give, you know, especially given the evidence that you cited earlier, Jillian, that in the first half of the poem, she is doing something personal. She's describing this family heirloom. We could say that she's doing it very differently from, say, like the way her friend Robert Lowell would have done it in a poem about, say, a Lowell family Bible or something. Yeah, right? yeah absolutely differently, quite impersonally, yeah. And now in the second section of the poem, um, I mean, one way, surely insufficient, but I think nevertheless with some accuracy to it, to describe what what the second half of the poem is, is it's a travelogue or something. Mm-hmm. It's um right. It's a it's like um a slideshow of mm-hmm. of trips we've taken. Mm-hmm. Um so what's interesting to you about the nature of 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 the description of those travels? Um uh, I, I suppose we should take it given the way the poem is set up rhetorically that whatever they are, they're not going to be serious or engravable. Right, right. And, you know, um, what what makes it, what, what strikes one, I think, about this um, is the, 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 the shifts from place to place, right? Oh, that there's, there's no narrative order uh, to these things. Um, everything only connected by and, and yeah. and, um, and sometimes not even by and, which is like the the, the most weekly um, hypotactic thing in the poem, right? Like right. it's 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 the the thing that makes some logic, at least in logic of and, and that's even missing. So, right. So um, if, if in, the first half of the poem begins thus, like there's a big difference between a, right. a poem that that begins thus and then and, right? Right, right. I mean, thus has a has a really strongly logical, you know, set of right. moves to make, right? right? Thereby, this, right? I, and I, is I, just I one damn and. thing after another, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so. We're, we start in St. John's, which I understand to be uh, a port of, of Nova Scotia, a, a part yeah. of Canada, right, of Nova yes. Scotia, yeah. um, and and a you know just this lovely description, um, and then you know just the glimpse. I mean, right 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 away, the question of visibility is 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 presented as 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 insufficient and partial. Just a glimpse. Right. Um, there's a sense of kind of sensoriness right hearing and feeling the touching bleed of goats um and there's also an interesting kind of visual rhyme between white and blue from the last section and butter and eggs from the next section oh, that's nice butter yeah. and eggs being a flower that looks sort of like a snapdragon mixed with a daffodil that you find in meadows in that region I love it. um and and then we have an ant and then we're suddenly in vatican city i assume at yeah Peter's. i think so right um uh, and and this kind of quite um, uh, colloquial um, line, uh, uh, and and at St. Peter's the wind blew and the sun shone madly, right? Which feels yeah. like it's very much of its time. Like think people would say madly about things like yeah. 
normally. Um, and then there are collegians, and we're not even sure we're still at St. Peter's. I assume we are, but it's not entirely clear. Um, I think so. I think I've seen that glossed as like, they must be members of the College of Cardinals, collegians right. in that sense. Right. right? And but, so they're okay, wearing yeah. black. I mean, cardinals wear red, yeah. but but yeah. maybe they're some level of, there's all these like different levels of St. Vatican studiers, and they all have different outfits to wear that are color coded. Um, but it's so quite, it's quite sort of um, sacrilegious the way they're described crisscrossing the great square with black, like ants. Right, right. It's, it's not at all um, reverent. And it, and it also is at a distance, right? Right. Um, and then boom, we're in a new place in Mexico, you know, and it's the dead man. And we're just truly really not able to catch up to where we are. Uh-huh. There's, you know, it's it's told in the way that children often tell stories where they assume, you know, all the context, you know. Yeah. Um, in Mexico, the dead man lay in a blue arcade that, and there's the repetition of dead. You know, it's it feels it feels full of affect, but without it being stated. Right. The language suggests a kind of trauma of having seen a dead person somewhere on your travels. Yeah. The dead volcanoes glistened like Easter lilies, which, of course, brings us back to Christ- Christianity. And yes. Resurrection and. Um, and and this horrible detail of the you know the jukebox going on right and playing yeah. this this very popular song of the day which was in a Disney movie of the era and um, also a, a a song that w- was important to Mexican nationalism and you know Jalisco being a um, a state and it's directed to Guadalajara which is actually a a, a place that that Ashbury writes about in the instruction yeah. manual anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so there's then, this disjunction between the sort of way we feel, the music that's on in the background, what we're yes, seeing. It's as though exactly. it's all coming apart. Right? right. It's all coming apart. It's all happening simultaneously. There's no order. And then we're at Volubilis, which is, you know, mm. a, uh, a a site of um, Roman ruin in, Mor- in Morocco, I believe, mm-hmm. um, a Berber yeah. Roman site, beautiful place um, where, you know, the, the old built world is being punctured by new nature in a way that completely breaks up, you know, the world. Um, Beautiful poppies line break splitting the mosaics. It's so great. It's so great. And then, and then this, I've always loved the phrase that follows that the fat old guide made eyes. I love yeah, that. I love that too. Like there's this, this other person there, which, which generically puts this poem possibly in the realm as I think Cador does later of dramatic monologue where whatever this moment of sort of lyric expression of, of feeling about these mm. travels that happens once we get to the eye or all these moments that are being collected, they've been observed by someone there, right. Who's in a different place and in a different, has a different set of feelings about what's happening, um, which puts yeah. the, the personal in, in a kind of, um, I don't know, limited, space it's not a totalizing space we're not supposed to inhabit the same space as this lyric speaker um entirely as as you pointed out earlier um for for most of its duration not not for all of it it, there's actually an interesting departure towards the end and and it's one of the first places i really heard ashbury's voice begin to break interestingly too um, for, for most of that second section, the, it, we're in the first person, but we're in, the, as you say, in the first person plural. So this is what we're doing. This is what happened to us. The, the we and the us, whoever comprise it is never specified. Um, but, you know, the traveling party, as it were. 
Um, I mean, I don't think it's trying to establish a kind of solidarity from speaker to reader or something Mm -hmm. like that. It's like Mm -hmm. the members of our group um, or the couple that's on the trip or whatever. Right. Um, Do you think the first part mm. does try to establish a solidarity? Is that a different we, a different our? Um, Uh, Do you mean in the very first line or do you mean throughout the first section? Throughout the first section, I mean our you know plotting against our Christian empire. Yeah, no, I, I, kind of... I think that's like you said, that's cited speech or something. That's yeah. that's um, you know, w- yes, that's establishing the um, the kind of um, the in group, the readerly community, right. yeah, which is made up of um, you know, <laughs> this is funny for me to say as somebody who is you know from the other side of the the crusading world, right. Um, but yes, the poem sort of hails you as a kind of member of our Christian world. Yes, right? and and you could you could be confused about it, I think, until you get to this section, right? I mean, maybe I don't know. Yeah. I hear it as cited speech, maybe because I know the poem so well. But I wonder, yeah, if it could be mistaken. Anyway, but to me, the the fact that there's a guy there making eyes kind of breaks the illusion for just a second, maybe yeah. just a second, right? Yeah. Of I also just find making eyes such a funny phrase. It is, right? Like, yeah. and, what, and what is the content of that, right? I mean, this is something I think O'Hara does a lot where a gesture happens in a poem mm-hmm. and you don't know how to read its meaning, right? Like it could be taken as a sexual thing or it could right. be taken as a like, huh, you know, tourists, you know. Uh-huh. Um, making eyes could mean a lot of things, right? Um, he could be just joking around. He could, you know, right. it's, it's an interestingly, I think, ambiguous gesture but whatever um, it whatever whatever the the particular content or context of that gesture what making eyes relies upon is a kind of in-group out-group communication right so you know in the way that a, if a child is saying something that a, and and its two parents are present they might communicate something with their eyes without the child's awareness or if you're traveling more to the point maybe uh, with a friend and you're in a kind of foreign country or something, something odd is happening to you. You sort of, there's a moment of recognition that happens um, right. through eye contact. Right. Um, so, so th- there are those kinds of hierarchies that one, f- one encounters in travel that are politically inflected um, here too. I, you know, so I think of like, a line like the English woman poured tea informing us that the Duchess was going to have a baby. Um, um, Where you're sort of like, who cares? Right. But it's, you know, <laughs> if you're an American, you might not be as enthused about that or um, it's and just this that, little glimpse. Yeah. yeah. And then that sits right next to, and in the brothels of Marrakesh, the little pockmarked prostitutes balance their tea trays on their head. So the tea again right. is, in, is in both. Right. Which, and this, this sense of, I'm starting to get a, a real sense of, of a, of a, of a, of a, of a globe, a globe that is yeah. crisscrossed by yeah. all kinds of things, Christianity, tea, commerce, tourism, I mean, right. this is 1948, I think, or 47 right. that she's written this. It's right. just a, a post-war moment um, right. Right. where I think Bishop felt like many Americans, like, wow, the world's our oyster, but then quickly realized, like, wow, all these places are are complicated and bombed out and look at yeah. the damage we've done. And yeah. um, I mean, it's a, co- it's a really complicated moment historically. Um, and she was rich enough to be able to do it, which is something that I think she was aware of, right. It's like yeah, kind yeah. of problematic. I think, yeah. And I think that comes through in moments like, um, flung themselves naked and giggling against our knees, asking for cigarettes. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. But she so, becomes a GI there almost, yeah, right? Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. So, so it, it, the moment that follows that, I think things really take a turn. And this is what I, what I was saying that where I thought I heard Ashbury's voice really sort of falter and break. Um, and it's also where we get a first person singular all of a mm-hmm. sudden. Mm-hmm. It was somewhere near there. I saw what frightened me most of all, a holy grave, not looking particularly holy. Um, and in that moment, I mean, there's so much that's interesting to me in that moment, but one of the things that's interesting about it is like we've been saying, um, largely, I think, led by that wonderful line, everything connected only by and and and, um, which I've always sort of thought, oh, that line must in particular must have meant a lot to Ashbury. You know, I Mm -hmm. think he's interested in that kind of connection. But anyway, that this is just sort of jarringly random um, scenes from travels. Um, but, but at that moment when she says it was somewhere near there, I saw what frightened me most of all, the most of all is doing an interesting kind of work there. I mean, it suggests in other words that like everything I've been telling you about has frightened me a little bit, but this is the thing that frightened me most of. So, and now it's not just a kind of random list. It's a, it's a list of things that frightened me to a greater or lesser extent. And this is interesting to me that you say this. I mean, I know that I, I've heard I've heard that reading before, and I, I I think it's true that there must be something about that most of all that's meant to signal fear, and it makes it interesting to me the way things are knitting up in the poem, like yeah. or attempting to knit up. I mean, the poppies almost rhymes with eyes and mm. evening and dripping and plush and us, right? There's sort of near rhymes and these yeah. sort of efforts at and all and baldekin and you know there's like yes. these kind of loose stitching yeah. um, and, and the, re, you know, repeated words, holy, holy. And that's happened through the poem so far, yeah. um, which, you know, I mean, you could read it a number of different ways that there's this desire for things to come to order thus should have been our travels, but there's also a kind of recognition that the things that will make them come together are kind of happenstantial, just about what juxtaposes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's holy. So this is going to sound really dumb, but I think it's holy in the sense of, you know, like um, sanctified or whatever. But it's also holy in the sense that it's a whole, you know, right, it's right. empty. Holy. Yeah, it's know? empty. Yeah, it's empty. It's happenstantial. It's forced or whatever. Um, I mean, exhortation, right, is that word, right? Um, yes. An open, gritty marble trough carved solid with exhortation, right? Yeah. It's like there's been real effort here to make this thing real, yeah. right? And um, But it's yellowed now as, as scattered cattle teeth, which is a really hard line of the poem to read correctly. Um, right. Because the, all the adders come yes. together. Yes, good. Um, uh, and, Half and, filled with dust, not even the dust of the poor prophet Panem who once lay there. And then we get to that line you love. So I want you to, yeah. to talk to us about the ending of that second section. Yeah, well, I mean, also the fact that it's a holy grave. And here we're back to the to the to the illustrated Bible too. Um, it's a holy grave, uh, and some people suppose like that jo- Saint John with the Baptist was somehow. Oh buried i don't know somewhere in that region um it always calls not, to mind to me the story of like jesus and the and the and the, the grave sort of the yeah. empty yeah the sort of right. stone and so forth right i mean but it's yeah. interesting because um it's a holy grave um but it was once a panems right which the only meaning of panem is non-christian right or pagan right mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also a prophet, right? So this is like right. this weird, um, this weird moment where different cultures have coalesced in the poem. Right. Different right. religious histories have coalesced in the poem, right. um, and um, and also I think it's it's a it's a it's a reference. I'm sure other people have said this too. It must be to some degree a reference to Ozymandias, right? Oh, Where right. Um, that sonnet by um, Percy Too Shelley, vast and trunkless legs of stone, right? Know. Where where you know I guess Shelley had seen a statue of. Is it Ramses too, mm-hmm. or uh, this, I think so, this, yeah. this Egyptian pharaoh, um, and, and and describes a person narrating an encounter with another person right. who saw this this you know wonderful statue that says you know look on my works ye mighty and despair yeah right um, that's that's become halved and falling apart in the desert right. and has no meaning anymore. Um, and so it's like and triply ironized, right? Triply yeah. ironized, but also meant to be kind of a sublime, right? Like yeah. this, 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 this telling of something that somebody experienced as sublime. And this is yet further ironized by the fact that whatever, whatever, uh, poetic trope she's trying to kind of enter into here, um, is, is failing, you know, even in the poem, because right yeah. out, right next to her is her guy, you know, presumably Kador, another guide yes. who who is who is just amused and probably has seen this kind of thing before right this is a site right. of pilgrimage where people have sublime encounters and they must seem sort of dime a dozen to kadur um right um and i i love the language of of in a smart produce right like yeah. it brings the cosmopolitan in right yeah. like that kadur has another life and it involves wanting to look smart and be out in the city or you know something like this and uh-huh. To me, anyway, like I, I suddenly this this novelistic, I have this whole image of Kador's life, you know, kind of. Yeah, it, it also it's, it seems to me to have the kind of tone or the language of like um, the 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 kind of British colonialist kind of um, travelogue or something, you know. Yes. The, yes. Yeah. Um, there's the sort of familiarity that's mixed with az- exoticism and kind of a sort of assumption of mastery or something. Indeed. You know? Oh, totally. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And I also think that um, Ashbury picks up on this in, in the instruction manual, yeah. which is you know oh, just good. a complete fantasy of Guadalajara that has yeah. literally nothing to do with the yeah. real Guadalajara, but yeah. it's, it's all told in this kind of completely not, you know, it's not Orientalism, but it's whatever it would, the same thing would be for uh, exoticizing, you know, Mexico right. as an American. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so if it's all right with you, I, 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 I want for us to, you know, spend our time now, um, what's left of it, thinking about the, this final section that I, I think I called a coda a little while mm-hmm. ago. Um, it, and, and, and maybe also I can, um, uh, just read those lines one more time so that they're fresh um, in people's minds. So we've gotten, remember, up to this point, the description of this this deluxe edition of a Bible in the first section of the poem, and then contrasted with it, the kind of disjunctive, perhaps frightening and ironic, but also funny in certain ways, description of our travels. And then there's another kind of break And we get the following lines, which end the poem. Everything only connected by and and and. Open the book. 
the gilt rubs off the edges of the pages and pollinates the fingertips. Open the heavy book. Why couldn't we have seen this old nativity while we were at it? The dark ajar, the rocks breaking with light, an undisturbed, unbreathing flame, colorless, sparkless, freely fed on straw, and, lulled within, a family with pets, and looked and looked our infant sight away. Um, so I think the first line of that section, everything only connected by and and and. We, I mean, we've talked plenty about. It. If you if you want to say more about that, um, by, by all means, be my guest. But it you know it it sounds like a complaint, a, a kind of complaint that's been made that's made about the section that preceded it, the section of travels that don't have anything stronger to connect them than the word and. But then we get this kind of instruction, which now really does feel to me, Jillian, I don't know about you, like an instruction to you, the reader, to me, open the book. Is that book the Bible again? Um, How do you take those lines? And and what are you being, um, if you do take those lines as instruction to you as reader, Jillian, what are you being instructed to do? Yeah, I mean, I I do find this one thing I love about poems that I love is was when they don't entirely yield their contents, right? And I yeah. do want to just <laughs> preface this by saying that I don't really know the answers to these questions, and I almost don't want to know them for everybody <laughs> else. But um, but I do I do agree with you that I'm, I wonder if you know if we must read the first line as a complaint. That's we can keep that aside, okay, um, for a second because. The, yeah, the instructions that follow, you know, certainly grammatically, it's it's a you know an order, a command um, to open the book. Um, I I love the ways that Bishop includes parentheses in her poetry, which are things that can't be read aloud. Um, right. Uh, uh, and and I I love you know the possibility that um, that 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 this unravels something about the command voice, right? That, yeah. that so we, the we sentence, have a command um, the to guilt you. rubs off the edges of the pages and pollinates the fingertips. That's a parenthetical. Exactly. And guilt for, I mean if it's not course, clear is right. G-I-L-T, not G-U-I-L-T. Right. And, but it, of course it's homophonically related to right. G-U-I-L-T. Mm-hmm. But it if if there's a command, open the book, and then it's repeated in another line, open the heavy book. Yeah. What intercedes between those two commands is this kind of Thing that's drawing us away from the authority of that voice and kind of it acknowledges that the guilt, like that there's something just literally falling apart about this heavy book. So if there's a kind of godlike voice in the open the book, yeah. open the heavy book, which I've always sort of thought there is a little bit yeah. in its commanding voice, it's, it's, it's tempered or complicated by the possibility that the book itself isn't quite so monumental. Yeah, that, and I and I also want to, I mean, I take the word pollinates sort of seriously here too, which is to say like, yeah, okay, so the word guilt, you're, you're right. There must no doubt be invoking some kind of homophonic association with, you know, um, the guilt that, you know, the kind of moral sense of feeling of guilt or whatever. Um, but what it seems to be referring to in the first place is, you know, so we're to imagine like that the this the edition of the Bible it has like a gold, right? The edges of the pages are gold. That so I think there's something interesting and also very bishop-like to me about the way the kind of real material materiality of the book is sort of getting onto the person who's mm-hmm. reading it 
and that's described not as um um a kind of um spoiling or um instead it seems to be generative it's mm-hmm. it's an act of pollination you know right it's, but i mean right yeah. and that but then i wonder like with fingertips you know right. we've had god spreading fingertip and spreading is another sort of yeah image of kind of taking over right yeah. um so and yeah. pollination could be yeah. another i mean it's complicated yeah. i i feel like it's both positive but it has this you know in the way it harkens back to the the sort of colonizing I don't know, possibly colonizing gesture of Christianity. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, but I, you know, so sorry. I, we're, uh, now I want to say, um, like if a, a too crude description of the, of the poem is that the first half of the poem is about a book and the second half of the poem is about our travels. Now in this coda, we get the book getting onto our fingers. It's, you know, what it, what it sort of it merges opens the possibility. Exactly. Precisely. What it opens the possibility of for me is that like, there's some kind of resolution of the dichotomy that's been established here. That's being offered in these final lines. You know, it's like mm-hmm. when I, when I teach this poem, I, you know, I'll ask my students sometimes, well, like the scene that's described in the final lines of the poem, where is it happening? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, you know, is it in a book? Is it something we saw? Is it only in the poem? Is it in our imagination? You know, it's sort of like what are the? Uh, but but I but I think it's sort of it's those questions are are almost maybe impossible to answer, or people might answer them somewhat differently. But I think you know, I guess the point I try to make is like it's hard to say, which is itself an interesting thing. Indeed. Indeed, yeah. Why couldn't we have seen this old nativity while we were at it? Yeah, and then this dash, right? Another um, bishop and, move, right? Right, right. And I, I mean, the the question of what speech act the question is, you know, um, if it's a literal question or a kind of hmm. plea or a kind of you know complaint. Um, right. Is, the idea um, might be that like we saw something, and we didn't recognize it as a nativity. While we were there, or, or like, um, there's a question about what seeing means, right? I mean, right. It, does seeing mean seeing it for what it is, or right. does seeing it, you know, um, you know, we were, you know, why couldn't we have seen it while we were at it? So we were there, but we didn't really see it. And right. and the question is, what what does the seeing mean? Like, do do we assume that seeing it means bringing it into a kind of cohesive concordant uh-huh. image that we can make sense of, or does it mean something like seeing it as just everything only connected by and and and, I mean, is it that that's uh-huh. not a complaint, but actually a kind of, this is the way it is, right? Everything only connected by and and and, right. and no grand narrative that's going to sew it all up into a, 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 a grim lunette. Yeah. Um, I love that. Um, and so, and then we get this description, which is sort of the mediated, I think by, that jo- that Johann Sebastian Bach um, carol, Break Forth, O Beauteous Heavenly yeah. Light, and okay. Usher in the Morning, Ye Shepherds Shrink Not with Affright, But Hear the Angel's Warning, This yeah. Child, Now Meek in Infancy, um, Our Confidence and Joy Shall Be, The Hour of Satan's Breaking, Our Peace Eternal Making, right? Uh-huh. Um, which, you know, heralds this age of peace with the the birth of Christ that of course does not come to pass. Right. (laughs) Um, 
So there's, you know, there's religious language in there, the dark ajar, the rocks breaking with light, um, which, you know, to me feels like this quite Bachian. I don't yeah, I don't remember I who the, who actually wrote those lyrics, a German, right. a German theologian in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. Um, an undisturbed, unbreathing flame. So exactly like what flames don't do, right? right. They, they 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 suck the air, um, they breathe like crazy. Yeah. Um it has no, it has no damage, right? It's colorless. It's sparkless. Um, th- there's endless straw for it. It you feels know? like endlessly renewable, right? This kind right. of magical self-generating right. Right. kind of light. Yeah. And, and, and then quite sort of out of the register of that kind of perfection is this quite humble description of a family with pets, right? Like to, <laughs> to call, to call the Christ scene, like to yeah. call the you know the ox and ass the the the, 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 the uh, sorry the the I've said it backwards the um, ox and ass right which are right. tropes reiterated again and again to call them pets you know it's right. just it's so wonderfully diminutive you know well it's perfect too that the it sort of maps onto the progress of the poem we go from this old nativity to a family with pets you know, this old nativity is the language of the first half of the poem. A family with pets is the language of the second half of the poem, but it's the same scene. Right. 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 It's the same scene. So it's been de-typologized or something, right? It's like, or or given itself back to it's sort of more meaningless coordinates. Right. I mean, of course, a family with pets also is a, is a real late forties ideal. Right. 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 it's the space of the family that like makes the person feel included in the very space that Bishop for re- several reasons, because she lost her family and also because she was gay, like was not, not afforded. Right. Yes. So it's, so it's interestingly cathected, I think. Oh, that's um, great. It's a sort yeah. of nostalgia for a past she didn't have. She didn't have, um, but it's also a, a real shutting down of the, of the grandeur and the, the import of the of the of the Christ family, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so I like I, don't know. I like I like the reading of the this sort of um, untypologizing move, right? The taking the thing that is so serious and engravable that you can't see it for what it is. You can only see it in terms of its um, sort of symbolic, sort of theological register. And in and in so in, and in a way, I mean, not to not to get not to impose too much of a theological reading in a way it's like the word made flesh at the end of the poem right it's exactly. like it's like yeah. this sort of theological type that becomes human right right you know and right. ordinary right it becomes ordinary not 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 holy yeah um and and i like you know the idea that to be looking at that and taking your fill that looking has a kind of violence something that that um bishop writes about a lot you know in january 1 yeah yeah, yeah. That poem, um, you know, she's thinking about conquistadors and and their their visual lust for the land they see arriving in Brazil, about right? yeah. arriving yeah. in Brazil, yeah. and thinking about, um, you know, the the rape of the the women, mm-hmm. the local women, and the and and the history of of art, right, as well. Um, so Kenneth yeah, Clark and, yeah, good, good. So you. you you've you've already begun to do this, but I, I want to hear you say more about the final line of the poem. So we get another dash. And I, I, I don't know if we should take 
the two dashes because they're separated by a number my one two three four line there's a four lines between the dashes if we even want to take the dashes as marking like the beginning and end of a parenthetical kind of phrase or um i mean it could be you know so why if, if, if we if we read it that way it would it would be something like why couldn't we have seen this old nativity while we were at it and looked and looked our infant side away. away right so right exactly right. i i do think that there um there is that that possibility for sure. Um, so, so in that last line, we get more things that are connected only by and and and, right? And looked <laughs> nice, and yeah. looked our and infant looked, side and looked. right? And and also, I love the idea. I mean, I've, I I struggle over whether looking something away. Yeah, what does is that like, mean? <laughs> I, I was I was talking with my husband about like what what things do we do away? Like, um, I've you know, got one for you. <laughs> drink Tell away, me. or yeah, yeah. you know, um, anchors but, away. Well, anchors away is a w e i g h. Yeah. But but yeah. I think there there are well, there's another which it's it's fire away is what it is. Yeah. Fire or away. in baseball, swing away. You swing say to away, a right? And I yeah. think it's 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 I, I always want this to mean um, two things. Both. Yes. Look away, like go for it. Look, 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 look. You know, take look all your to looking. your heart's content. All right, you want. But also, you, right. Yeah. Yeah. Just right. go for it. And there's that desire and that lust that comes from looking and just wanting to take in a scene and own it at some level and make sense of it. But then there's also the possibility that there will be a kind of spending of looking of the desire for looking like, look it away, like, Um, like, like, like corrode it away, almost in a way. Right. Right. Um, right. To to sort of erase it or extinguish it or exhaust it. it. Right. Right. To exhaust it, to do the thing that the flame won't do. Right. Which is, which is expend itself Uh, because there's, you know, this is a poem that it does locate itself quite a bit in, in, in worlds of conquest, right. And Mm -hmm. places of conquest. And, and, and it has a lot, it has a lot to, to set up about, about the crusades in a way, right. And about, and about, about Christianity as a kind of violence, right. Uh, We should say something. Yeah, totally. We should say something also about the weirdness of the phrase infant sight. So. Yeah. Yeah. Infant sight, right. I'm I'm moving away from infant sight, but. um, I know that in a draft of the poem, at least I think this is true. I remember once knowing this, (laughs) I don't think I've looked at the draft myself though. Um, she, instead of infant, had the word silent there, which is etymologically what infant means, right? right so it means right. speechless. Before talking, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, that's why we call babies infants is, you know, we call them that because they can't talk yet. Right, um, right. So what, you know, silent, silent sight, um, speechless sight, silent sight sounds almost like silent night. Now we're back mm, in the nice. realm of song. Yes. Um, so... I don't know. I mean, is it you so nicely? And I totally am with you on the kind of ambiguity of what and looked and looked blank away might mean. So it might mean, again, to do it wholeheartedly, do it to your heart's content, do it as much as you want. Or it might mean to do it so as to work it out of your system to sort of get rid of it. Right. Um, Now, if we plug the idea of infant sight into the algebraic formula there that that's what is taking that that's the variable um what does it mean to have those two attitudes at once about something we're going to call infant sight you know right it's it's interesting i mean one one thinks about the possibility that 
infant desire, you know, desire for the needs of an infant, right. Mm -hmm. Are pure. I mean, they're pure. Yeah. Um, if, if infant sight is allowed to become adult sight, right. Mm. Does it become, um, is there something about the not allowing for a kind of innocent desire for something? Um, yeah. Uh, not letting it come to fruition, right? Not letting it come to speech, right? Not letting it, yeah. the, the entrance into speech being some sort of fall that tries huh. to make sense of things that maybe had a pleasure before language. And a reality. You know, yeah. And a reality on, of their own that, you know, just wants to be left alone, right? Which is, of course, the great modernist desire to kind of see without discourse, to see without convention, to... I love it. The baby, the sort of wide-eyed baby taking in the world. Right. Who's sort of learning it, knowing it, but can't do, But gives no meaning to it to and doesn't, it. Yeah. doesn't turn it into, into pre-established meanings. Um, well, that really does seem to address the kind of either-or situation of the first and second halves of the poem where the first half is sort of like all meaning but with very little life then right. then there's life without meaning <laughs> you know right 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 i mean and i almost wonder then though about the the wonky final lines of the first section which just kind yeah. of the dwelt upon um right. the thing that's caught in the toils of an initial letter the caught in the toils meaning there i think uh, caught in the nets, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, toils means the nets that that yeah. that capture a a, a, p a bit of prey, yeah. right? So yeah. there's something about when dwelt upon, they all resolve themselves, and there's this. You you had this, you know, just the sense of those lines as kind of spreading and yeah. and 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 falling apart in a way. Yeah. Um, I wonder if that's an example of a kind of. I don't know. I'm yeah. I'm just puzzled still. Like there's still things yeah. that I can't exhaust, as as Ashbury well, himself said about these yeah. these lines and their connections. Well, I um, think, and in a way, I think the lines are about the kind of fantasy of this inexhaustible looking. You yeah, know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I I I I I hear the um, ambiguity, as I've said, that you that you describe in the final line between the the two versions of what to look and look something away might be, but it, I, I do kind of come down on one side of that ambiguity. So maybe it's ultimately not one for me, which is I, I think the poem wants to locate itself at this place of um, a kind of inexhaustible looking, a looking that can't be, um, you know, that, 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 um, that needn't be satisfied, but mm -hmm. that might go on forever, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it's, and, it's good yeah. and pure somehow this infant sight and it, it needn't, it, it, it's a fantasy of sort of. Uh, yeah. Of I, I think so. I, I, I think it's a fantasy because it's something we couldn't have. We couldn't have, we didn't Why have. Why couldn't we have? Yeah. yeah right, we right. didn't have it. Life isn't right. like that, but you know, maybe a poem is or something like that is right. the, is the, right. um, is the version of it. Right. I'd offer here. Right. Uh, um, it's worth saying too that these are, I think, some of the most iambic lines of the poem. Oh right? yeah. Everything only connected by That's and perfect. and and open the book, the guilt rubs off the edges of the pages and pollinates the finger. It's just it's it's you know 
and looked and looked our infant sight away. I mean, that's it's just pentameter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, she does that sometimes at the ends of poems. I think about the yet to be dismantled elms, the geese, the geese you know, oh, is another, another one. poem I that's love. That's another yeah. one that ends yeah. with a line of pentameter. That's um, true. Um, yeah, it's sort of, and for me, what in both cases, what that signals, and actually, so sorry, we're, 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 I just quoted the, the last line of the poem called Poem, um, the, another bishop poem. And I think in both of those cases, I think both of those poems are sort of about like representations of the world memories mm-hmm. and then this final scene that's sort of neither and both at once right you know right and she she was very interested in in the history of making likenesses you know yes. this is something that i've written about about her what she learned from another american poet william carlos williams um yeah about his disdain in a way for metaphorics and his right. his preference for um for straight description, right? As, yeah. as his fantasy, right? And, yeah. and and thought a lot about the ethics of what it means to turn one thing into another thing and to try to I love it. Um, make sense out of it that way. So it's it's something that she's she's always she's always thinking about. But I think especially, you know, I think especially in these 40s poems, because I think I yeah. think poem might be from the same era. The poems this. later. Yeah. Oh, it's poem, later. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's from Geography Three. That's that's okay. a later one. But. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's it's a it's a definitely a preoccupation of hers. Um, Jillian, I I, I want to just um, I want to keep talking with you for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> um, but at some point, you know, um, uh, all things have to end. All Our things have to end, is, at least yeah. for now. Yeah, yeah, at least for now. Um, but I, you know, we've made it this far, and I think we should we should go just a little bit further because um, I'll bet having um, thought about this poem now for the last hour. And a half or so, and having heard Ashbury read it, and you know, bemoaning the absence of a recording of Bishop reading it, what our audience would really like to hear now is the poem one more time, but in your voice. Would you be willing to read it for us? I'd be delighted. Thank Thanks. you. Over two thousand illustrations and a complete concordance. Thus should have been our travels, serious, engravable. The seven wonders of the world are tired and a touch familiar, but the other scenes, innumerable, though equally sad and still, are foreign. Often the squatting Arab or group of Arabs plotting, probably, against our Christian empire, while one apart, with outstretched arm and hand, points to the tomb, the pit, the sepulchre. The branches of the date palms look like files. The cobbled courtyard, where the well is dry, is like a diagram. The brickwork conduits are vast and obvious, the human figure far gone in history or theology, gone with its camel or its faithful horse. Always the silence, the gesture, the specks of birds, suspended on invisible threads above the sight, or the smoke rising solemnly, pulled by threads. Granted a page alone or a page made up of several scenes arranged in catty-cornered rectangles or circles set on stippled gray, granted a grim lunette caught in the toils of an initial letter, when dwelt upon, they all resolve themselves. The eye drops waited through the lines the burin made, the lines that move apart like ripples above sand, dispersing storms, God's spreading fingertip, and painfully, finally, that ignite 
in watery, prismatic white and blue. Entering the narrows at St. John's, the touching bleat of goats reached to the ship. We glimpsed them, reddish, leaping up the cliffs, among the fog-soaked weeds and butter and eggs. And at St. Peter's, the wind blew and the sun shone madly. Rapidly, purposefully, the collegians marched in lines, crisscrossing the great square with black like ants. In Mexico, the dead man lay in a blue arcade the dead volcanoes glistened like Easter lilies. The jukebox went on playing, Ay, Jalisco. And at Volubilis, there were beautiful poppies splitting the mosaics. The fat old guide made eyes. In Dingle Harbor, a golden length of evening, the rotting hulks held up their dripping plush. The Englishwoman poured tea, informing us that the Duchess was going to have a baby. And in the brothels of Marrakesh, the little pockmarked prostitutes balanced their tea trays on their heads and did their belly dances, flung themselves, naked and giggling against our knees, asking for cigarettes. It was somewhere near there. I saw what frightened me most of all. A holy grave, not looking particularly holy, one of a group under a keyhole-arched stone baldachin, open to every wind from the pink desert an open, gritty marble trough carved solid with exhortation, yellowed as scattered cattle teeth, half filled with dust, not even the dust, of the poor prophet Panem, who once lay there. In a smart burnous, Cador looked on amused. Everything only connected by and and and. Open the book. The gilt rubs off the edges of the pages and pollinates the fingertips. Open the heavy book. Why couldn't we have seen this old nativity while we were at it? The dark ajar, the rocks breaking with light, an undisturbed, unbreathing flame, colorless, sparkless, freely fed on straw, and, lulled within, a family with pets, and looked and looked our infant sight away. Jillian White. Thank you so much for the conversation, for thinking about this poem that I love so much and I know differently and, and better. Uh, um, Thank you, Kamran. Right back at you. It was absolutely delightful. Such a joy. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, what a gift. Thank you um, again. And, and thank you, dear listeners, for um, making it with us. Um, uh, stay tuned. Uh, subscribe um, to the podcast and um, you know, share an episode with a friend. We'll have more for you soon. Uh, and until then, be well, everyone.